When we think of alcoholics, we have a tendency to slot them into one of two categories. There are the troubled alcoholics, drinkers who never find lasting recovery, and eventually end their life as a statistic. Then there are the successful alcoholics, like Stephen King. These are alcoholics who started off as functional, everyday drinkers, then they hit rock bottom, discovered an inner strength, and eventually quit drinking altogether. Over time, these successful alcoholics become examples for others to follow. We're pointing at Stephen King as our example of a successful alcoholic because King has been very candid about his past addiction and alcoholism. He admitted publicly that he doesn't remember writing Cujo because of his cocaine use. And King once shared in a Guardian interview that he hit rock bottom when he attended his son's Little League game. He had arrived with a can of beer in a brown paper bag. The coach came over to King and said, quote, If that's an alcoholic beverage, you're going to have to leave. We'll have a link to the full Guardian interview in our show notes. The irony is, Stephen King has written books about both sides of alcoholic. Both the troubled alcoholic and the successful quitter. In The Shining, we see Mad Jack Torrance, an abusive husband whose drinking and rage haunts the family worse than the ghost of Overlook Hotel. Jack is our model troubled alcoholic. And here's a spoiler if you haven't seen The Shining. Jack's alcoholism contributes to his death. Then in Stephen King's sequel, Dr. Sleep, we catch up with Jack's son, Danny. Danny becomes a model of the successful alcoholic. Danny's drinking doesn't kill him like his father. Instead, he joins a 12-step program, goes into recovery, and becomes the literal hero of the story. This dual identity of addiction, the troubled alcoholic who loses the battle, and the successful alcoholic who overcomes, is ingrained in our public zeitgeist. Ingrained enough that a horror writer, whose job it is to tap into our collective subconscious, made this duality the cornerstone of his career. But what if I told you this duality of the tormented alcoholic and the recovered alcoholic is all wrong? What if I told you that both Jack Torrance and Danny Torrance had the exact same neurological switch that made them drinkers? And it's the same switch that many writers have in their brains, a switch that might be the reason so many geniuses are also drinkers. Now, what if I told you that in a few years, we could turn that switch off? You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert, and I'm joined by researcher, writer, and introvert, Joe Anthony. Good evening, Todd. Joe, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Today we're talking about alcoholism, and not in the way you might think. We've devoted our entire episode to a series of studies that have exposed the fundamental connection that all alcoholic brains share, as well as a potential cure for alcoholism, which could have already proven itself. First, we'll start with the myth Stephen King has tapped into, the myth of the binary alcoholic. That successful alcoholics can beat their demons through grit, willpower, and social support, whereas troubled alcoholics relapse due to a weakness in their character. Secondly, we'll discuss the neurology of alcoholism, 
will ask questions like, does college partying create alcoholics? Are my kids driving me to drink? And why are so many great writers alcoholics? Finally, we'll look at the future of treatment for alcoholism and why all of our best programs and medicines might look quaint or dangerous in another 10 years. To kick this discussion off, Joe is going to tell us about the study that inspired today's episode. Okay, so first off, I would like to ask you a quick question, Todd. Yes. Uh, do you have any letters in front of your name? Letters? Yeah, like a DR or an MD. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm like street that. educated. I'm not a PhD medical doctor. I know where you're going with this. Okay. <laughs> I want to say the same thing about me. I, I am not Dr. Anthony. Um, and anything you guys listen to today, uh, this comes from nerdy researchers online who are banging their heads against weird articles. So um, I, I encourage you uh, to listen to this with discrimination. Uh, stay away from Facebook and news websites. <laughs> And anything you hear that interests you, please look it up and read more. Uh, read our sources um, because we want you to challenge us. We, we like it when people uh, look into what we're doing. So this is all based on uh, an Atlantic article that I read. Um, it's called the, A Landmark Study in the Origins of Alcoholism. And it was so fascinating and, and so um, eye-opening for alcoholism. I want to share it with you. So, uh, alcoholism as a struggle, um, it's more of a rainbow than a binary. Uh, you've talked about Stephen King, how he lays out the idea that there is uh, a successful alcoholic and a, a failed, troubled alcoholic. Um, and something that struck me uh, with this article is they talk about how it's really more just a 15% across all mammals that turn into alcoholics or have the potentiality to do that. Um, so have you ever heard uh, of monkeys or like show animals getting drunk? I have. Like there's a bear at a certain bar in Russia that they, they give it booze and it's like an, it's an attraction. But then it becomes an alcoholic because it's, it drinks all the time. Right. It gets, sick with, it gets sick and doesn't perform if it hasn't, been, hasn't had a couple drinks. Right. I think there's even like a, a Simpsons joke about that, like a bear mauling somebody because it's drunk. But it, it's cute, but it, it's it's pretty tragic, too. And then you've, I've heard things over in Thailand and stuff, uh, monkeys that get addicted to because the tourists will give them beer. Right. Thinking it's funny and then they become alcoholic little monkeys. Right. Same thing with like vacation islands where you'll you'll see monkeys get uh, uh, they get too used to drinking and then they'll come over and like kite people's drinks. And it's it's <laughs> annoying for everybody. Well, that, that kind of points out something that they got to in this study. So they, they looked at um, rats. And uh, rat studies for alcoholism have always been sort of uh, fraught with difficulties. It's very tough to find alcoholism in the brain. Uh, it's nearly impossible. Uh, what they would do in the past is they would give these studies uh, where they, they have rats in a tank and a switch. And the switch would dispense either uh, food or alcohol, or, or it would dispense um, cocaine. Uh, and these studies usually result in 100% addiction rates. That they would just convert all rats into addicts because they just have... I, I mean, like, I would do the same, right? Like, if I were trapped in a glass tank. Yeah, because it's... Yeah. The choice between that and that. 
Right. Yeah. You're you're in a, um, a sensory deprived uh, or deprived area. All you have is a single switch that gives you a chemical that will entertain you. Which makes you think about kids who grow up in a in an addictive family where there's there's addiction everywhere. Right. Right. There's one lever everyone's hitting, and that yeah. kid just sees that get hit all the time. So um, the the problem with studies in the past have been that they've only had one component to them, and that's whether or not a rat gets addicted or not. So this Atlantic article, um, they talk about a study uh, by Marcus Hellig, who works with the National Institute of Health. And he had worked on these other studies with the rats, uh, and he wanted to find a way to identify which rats were actual addictive uh, alcoholics. Not just would they hit a switch if they were given literally nothing else, would they hit a switch if they had another option. And that's something that alcoholics have in real life which is if they don't want to drink there are other substances they can substitute with uh they can do marijuana or they can get addicted to painkillers or or they can eat um high calorie foods um so that's what marcus hellig did normally uh rats in this situation you wouldn't want to introduce another variable to muddy up a, a test but what this did is it emulated sort of real circumstances and we get a situation where he finds 15% of rats were natural alcoholics. So, Given other choices, they would still choose to... That would still be choice number one, door number one. Exactly. Uh, given the choice between sugar water, which was calorically dense, it was a, as good calorically as drinking the alcohol, if not better, or they could have the booze, 15% stayed with the hooch. And right. So that's where you get that 15% of monkeys on the beach, 15% of rats, 15% of alcoholic bears. Sounds a lot like American diet, though. Coca-Cola, cocaine, or booze, you know, right? Right, you've got your choices. <laughs> if, if All unhealthy. Yeah. If you're a recovering alcoholic, you're, you're drinking a pot of coffee. Like, <laughs> or there's, there's donuts at every AA meeting, so... Um, this supplementing is, is what allowed scientists to really get into this. And they found that um, 15% of rats became natural alcoholics, and they would continue drinking even if they electrified the booze. So even to the point where you know real humans become addicted, where they prove that they're in that 15%, is when they drink even though a doctor has said, you're hurting yourself. This is going to kill you. Right. Keep it up. We won't be around much longer. Right, their blood pressure is soaring, their, their liver is screaming, and they're still doing it. They just can't stop. Right. So that's, that's where we start finding, you know, th this big breakthrough is here we can actually see the 15% uh, of alcoholics, and it's, it's a genetic component. There's something in them making them, you know, continue drinking. And so once they could identify that, for the first time ever, they, they said there's something biologically different with these rats, that's when they could open up their brains, of course, and find out what's wrong. Well, hold up on that one, the, the brain trigger one. We're, we're going to get back to that, but just hold up for one second. Sure. Now, Stephen King is an alcoholic writer, writing about an alcoholic writer who's working on his novel. This is the inception of brain anxieties. <laughs> it's like, it's like a, the, those multiple mirrors looking in on yeah, themselves. We're filming a video of a video of a video, right? Right. Um, why are so many creative people great drinkers? It's like they can't turn that thing off. Writers like Faulkner, Hemingway, or Douglas Adams, who admitted to inventing the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe while he was sitting in a field 
drunk staring at staring up at the stars or alcoholic painters like Van Gogh or Jackson Pollock famous politicians uh, Richard Nixon Winston Churchill known alcoholics and when you get into the entertainment business and creative souls like Robin Williams Mel Gibson Bradley Cooper Billy Joel Amy Winehouse just goes list goes on and on of alcoholic artists now, of course, the most famous one, writer-wise, if known for his drinking, is of course Hemingway. Right, right. He's a better writer after a drink, and I think we all kind of have that romanticized. If if I could be a genius, if I just got drunk enough, right? Right. It would reveal the genius in me <laughs> right, if I just got loaded. Right. Well, there's a lot more to it than that, right? As you as a writer would know. Right. I, I remember reading this uh, uh, a, a criticism of Hemingway. Uh, somebody accused him of being a, a drunk writer, and he said, "No, I don't drink when I write. I, I, I you know, write sober, edit, you know, no, write drunk, edit sober, something like that." He, he always made these wisecracks, yeah. but he actually criticized Faulkner. Uh, Hemingway said, as much of an alcoholic he was, he said that he could tell when Faulkner had started drinking on the page. Like he could be reading uh, Faulkner, and he'd see on the paragraph, you know, oh, there he took his first drink because it's getting a little bit loose. Because <laughs> he knows, he knows the style, and he's a pro himself. Right. You know, it's funny because today I was listening to uh, Jimmy Buffett, and he's um, Margarita in Paradise, and he's he's known as a drinking thing. Most of his songs are about drinking and stuff, and he's kind of made a living off the alcoholic image. Right. And then it turns out that he's a uh, you know worth a, a half a billion dollars. So and he has he hasn't been in the pop charts ever in his whole life. So it's just he's made that li- uh, that image. But I, again, I think it's the same for thing as Hemingway. He just talks about drinking lots in his songs. Right. So, it's part of the image. Yeah, it's part of the branding. Right. Um, many of these creatives were not just drinkers, but they were dependent alcoholics, which makes us wonder: Is there a fundamental difference between our brains and theirs? So. I'm going to quote directly from the article now. And, and again, I can't stress this enough. Uh, go read it. It's on theatlantic.com. Um, and this is just a couple of paragraphs because I really don't want to uh, botch the science of this to mislead you. Um, so this, this all takes place in the amygdala, uh, the, the mechanism we're talking about. And it says in here, uh, quote, The amygdala is an almond-shaped region that sits deep within the brain and is heavily involved in processing emotions. Uh, and then they, they go on to talk about uh, this thing called GABA, which is a, a, a molecular mechanism. Uh, so I'm going to quote again. Uh, quote, GABA is a molecular red light. Certain neurons make and release it to stop their neighbors from firing. Once that's done, the GABA-making neurons use an enzyme called GAT3 to pump the molecule back into themselves so they can reuse it. But in the amygdala of the alcohol-preferring rats, the gene that makes GAT3 is much less active, and it makes just half the usual levels of the pump. GABA accumulates around the neighboring neurons, making them abnormally inactive. So what I can tell, the, the layman of this, because I am a layman, is that alcoholic brains are also nervous brains. And I, I think this is going to be kind of like a no-duh moment for a lot of people that are familiar with alcoholism or alcoholics. Uh, the notion that, that an alcoholic is a nervous brain, that, that probably comes as no shock. 
but they are that way before they started drinking. It's not from the drinking. I think that's uh, something to... Right. If uh, What we've talked about, the, the idea that you have these, these monkeys that will get addicted, these rats that will get addicted, uh, mammals basically across the spectrum, humans across the spectrum. This is something that's always existed in us. It's 15% of mammals, apparently, and it's, it's across the board. So it is a mechanism built into us as a species. And every recovered alcoholic that I've known has always said that they have to be careful that they don't channel that obsession, addiction into something else, whether it's sex, gambling, overeating. They're very susceptible to another vice. Right. And I'm really glad you, you said it that way, that, that you can channel it. Because uh, I'm starting to think that that is uh, possibly a mechanism in, in sort of this, this genius alcoholic uh, uh, theme we're running. Um, now, something else I'd like to put out, uh, the, the notion that you have functional or successful alcoholics, um, that actually might be channeling. Uh, uh, this is speculating. Um, I also want to point out, um, while I was exploring this article, uh, I, was, I was pitching this notion to my uncle and my aunt. My, my uncle is my, my um, uh, he introduced me to science articles when I was very young. I was like 12, and I'm reading Goosebumps. And he's like, no, no, put that aside. That, that's kid stuff. And he's like, try the Scientific American. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm telling them about this podcast that we're working on, and I, I'm talking about, you know, hey, isn't this neat? They have this study that shows that alcoholism might just be uh, a nervousness in the brain, that it, it doesn't process, you know, GABA and this GAC3 thing. It, it's, it's a mechanism that makes us nervous. And when I started talking about that, um, potentially, you know, uh, people who are also brilliant and alcoholics, this connection, uh, when I started saying maybe it's a mechanism of uh, they're, they're focusing, they're channeling, they're, they're built nervous. And so like the eye of Sauron, they're focusing on something. And when I started saying that uh, maybe that's the connection, he was ironically this, this programmer. He, he's a programmer. He's walking through the kitchen, drinking a beer. And behind him is a beer pyramid that he has drank throughout the night. <laughs> and then he start, he shouts out from the kitchen. He's like, speculating about science. Like, it's it's not upheld. <laughs> and so I, I do want to put that caveat in here is that at this point, this is an opinion. That this is this notion that alcoholics are humanity's warriors. That there are, are prairie dogs on alert. There are hypervigilance. Um, that is me speculating. Uh, the part about anxiety is not speculating. That's that's just been proven. You're entitled to your opinion, though. I, and I what am. the research says. <laughs> and I, I will take that entitlement as far as I can. <laughs> <laughs> so you also mentioned uh, that y- you've talked about how adulthood and, and parenthood and specifically maybe college drinking. Uh, you met, you had a friend who, who thought that was what made an alcoholic. Yeah, a very dear friend of mine. She she produces documentaries and and she talks about the binge drinking of college frat fraternities and how it's romanticized and how guys brag about how how, how effed up I got last night. And she said, and we couldn't see that these guys ten fifteen years from now are going to be alcoholics. I mean, come on, it's pretty obvious. Right. It's it's almost like college is minting alcoholics, like they are stamping them out with beer funnels. Yeah. Well, that's. And in the business world, too, my personally, you know, being in um, outside sales and stuff, and that's changed. 
through the years. I mean, it, it used to be you'd got you had a beer, a couple beers, you got wasted during lunchtime when you're a salesperson. Right. And which always cracks me up because now these new businesses now, these new, uh, I guess you'd say, millennial, they try to attract a certain kind of people. Say, oh, we do we do shots on Fridays and we have beer. we did that <laughs> stuff in the 90s all the time. We didn't have, we didn't need to, to do it on Friday. Right. You know, we did it all day long every day. Right, it's like the Wolf of Wall Street. Where <laughs> exactly. It's, it's right. like, they, they think sex, violence, and drugs are a new thing. Oh no, we've been doing this stuff for a while. Right, that's a hip new thing to do in Silicon uh, Valley. Is yeah, everybody has drugs at their desk. Like, yeah. it's, if you're saying it's cool, it's not cool, right? Right. Oh well, no, I, I'm not going to judge the coolness. Uh, I, I will, however. Uh, I'm the the point I'm trying to make is that. Um, we expose uh, that fifteen percent of people to these these patterns, and it's, it's acceptable and it gets attention. So that's a good place to get a foothold in too. Right. I've also spoken with uh, teachers. One of the best places to to hang out briefly is at a teachers' lounge, uh, because you get to hear all of them talk about how much they drink after work. <laughs> and God bless teachers; they probably have earned it um, between the parents and the kids. Yeah, I think so. Right. Uh, but the the point we're making today is that um, uh, college does not make you a a lifelong alcoholic. Teaching does not make you an alcoholic. Adulthood and being a parent does not necessarily make you an alcoholic. It may make you drink. Uh, you may have something that that triggers that in your life, or you reach for it as a coping mechanism. Um, but what what it seems to truly expose whether or not you're an alcoholic is repetitive activity that sets the pattern. And on that point, too, the parent who says, well, I drank when I was in college, too, or I did drugs. I, I, did, I did cocaine a few times in college. There's a difference between that person and an everyday user drinker. Right. It's not someone who really has a habit, not that does something once to someone who does something every single day. Right. It's the difference between uh, exposure and opportunity uh, and an everyday habit. Somebody that, that has to do it. Uh, we talked about the rats where the, the beer was electrified and they're still doing it. So that's, that's not the same as a college drinker who is just taking a, a beer shot. There. It's funny. I've never thought about that until you brought that up today. That in those, those little bo- white boxes, you would be bored out of your mind. I don't care what kind of animal. <laughs> right. I never thought about that. It's like they have nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> that thing could dispense a, a, a Pez. It could, it could be yeah. literally anything. You would hit the Anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's the opinion we're going off of today is that uh, alcoholics are humanity's warriors. And, and before we move on, I want to bring up one last uh, point about um, alcohol being across uh, all mammals. Have you heard of these uh, these bears that sniff jet fuel? No, I've not. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, one of those delightfully Russian things. Um, <laughs> but when they were retiring their their jets, uh, they had to find a place to store their jet fuel. So there are these uh, canisters of jet fuel just laying out in fields because if you're not being paid by the hour, why find a silo or a warehouse? I'm envisioning this somewhere in Siberia. Right, right. It's somewhere in Russia. <laughs> it's deep out there. there. There's no, there's no waste management thing. They just throw <laughs> right. shit wherever. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, comrades. <laughs> they don't bury anything. Yeah. Or, <laughs> there's right. no OSHA or any kind of environmental laws. You just throw the shit out in the field. Right, exactly. It, it's it's like the uh, the redneck stores their car in the lawn kind of logic. <laughs> except that it's a whole country. <laughs> Um, we're going to lose all of our Russian audience now. <laughs> Except all, all one of them. All two all, of them. All two of them, yeah. Uh, 
Uh, so they, they have these uh, these jet fuel canisters just laying out, and uh, they found out that apparently bears will go up and sniff them and just get really loaded and roll around in the field. And wow. it's, it's adorable and weirdly tragic, uh, but I will just say <laughs> it's probably 15% of bears, so not all bears. <laughs> <laughs> You're, if you're anything, you're consistent in your theories, right? In your beliefs. Right. <laughs> I don't want to veer off. If you're an alcoholic, one of the first defense mechanisms of drinking is to joke about your problem. Make light of it. Make people laugh about your habits. After all, it's hard for someone else to call you on your problem if you're the first one to admit it. Now, I can relate to this one as pe- people who are at the bar every night. That's kind of part of their identity is drinking. Kind of the Jimmy Buffett I was talking about. Drinking every night or they're the life of the party. They're the hardcore party or they can drink more than anybody else. Right. And they'll brag about it. Right. If you're Dean Martin, you're drinking apple juice out of a glass to make people think you're drinking whiskey. Yeah. It's so part of your personality. I've often wondered that about like Ron White and stuff. If, if that's If he's pretending to be drunk sometimes, and he might not be a good example, but there's a... There's a lot of those guys. That's just so much of their image. It's your stick, yeah. Yeah, and if they couldn't perform, if they were, you know, but they couldn't perform if they were that loaded. They couldn't be that good, that polished. Right. I don't know. Have you read Stephen King's book on writing? I have. What did you think of it? I thought it was brilliant. Uh, The part that I particularly like, um, I'm an outline writer myself, so I I have to have a, a framework to work on. I love that he craps all over outline writers. He says he doesn't believe in it. And that it, when he dies and goes to heaven, he's going to make sure those guys were faking it, that they, they were making up that they had a plan. So that didn't, that didn't offend you? You didn't get on the defensive? Not at all. I thought it was delightful. Well, for the listeners, I'll tell you about the book. It's one of my favorites. I grew up in Maine, and I'm a big Stephen King fan. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of, of horror fiction, but I'm just a big fan of his stuff. I, I grew up by listening to it, and then it used a lot of the small towns where I knew when I was a kid, because Maine is all small towns. Oh, yeah. But the book is 50% writing style, which I'm not a writer, you are. And the, the other one is just kind of a bio of his life. And it's, to me, it's very, it's very inspiring and self-help, someone who went from, from nothing, living in a trailer, to a major book deal. And a major, but he talks about his life and his battles with, with addiction and, and just kind of putting one foot in front of the other. I guess the one thing that really came out of it is what a great work ethic he had yeah. to just turn out this much content over all these years. But he was he was also drinking through that whole period, right? So he, he must have had something that let him sort of get away with that while he was working? Yeah, he did. Um, he was once quoted as saying, I like to drink alone. I never get ugly when I drink too much. I never bore myself with a lot of dull conversation. And I have never yet been invited to step outside with myself. <laughs> <laughs> so... So that, that goes back to the humor part, that, that he's using humor, so if he calls himself out on his drinking, nobody else will. Yeah. Um, humor, evasion, cleverness, and competency are all ways for an alcoholic to evade facing the real problem. And once these evasions have stopped working, then it's time to enter rehab or AA 12-step. Like, if you still have a good job, if you're still successful, you can always justify, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I just like to have my beer. Right. Yeah. When I when I was drinking, uh, I got away with it because I was clever, and it was easier. I mean, it worked until it didn't. Until explain the didn't part. Explain what didn't work anymore. Well, I I eventually had to go into recovery because it was 
not being called out on your problems, on your drinking or, or whatever your addiction is. I mean, I, I definitely fall into that 15% we've been talking about. And it's, it's tough because when no one calls you on it, it it's up to you. Like, it, you really just have to be your own, your own metric for that. Well, as being another 15%er myself and a family full of 15%ers, um, I know what you mean. And the, the problem I always had was if nobody says anything, you think you're kind of fooling everybody. Exactly. But not everybody's comfortable. Not everybody's comfortable doing an intervention or sitting down. They just want you to go away. Right. So, so you think you're fooling anybody even though you, you're acting weird. You're not showing up. You smell and look a little funny. At least right. that's my that's the word that's where I was at. I I think it's a very fair way to put that. Twelve step programs can be life saving. Rehab programs can give you time you need. It can give you a real break. You can step away from your habits and you can gain some much needed clarity. But twelve step and rehab success rates have come into question over the last ten years. According to Dr. Lance Dodes, author of the Sobering Truth. AA has about a 5 to 10% success rate. For that small, only 5 to 10%, AA really works. It really gets results. The social component and the camaraderie can give the recovering alcoholics the perspective they need to change their lives for the better. Now, I know about this from the AA program. What you do is you replace the people you hang out with. You change your circle from the bar people and the partying people that you go hang out with to the sober people. So you don't go to the bar after work, you go to an AA meeting and you circle yourself up in those friends and you get busy with those friends. They have activities, they have AA dances, they have AA hiking, AA motorcycle, anything AA, they have yoga, anything you want to do, they're going to create a new whole circle of friends for you. Right, so they, they give you that sort of fishbowl thing. They, they surround your environment. And I think what's deceiving about the 5 to 10% thing is, is that it's kind of like to me, it's like when you go to a dietitian and they write you out this diet and you go home and you go right to Jack in the Box, right to McDonald's and eat whatever you want. And you say, you know what? Those dietitians don't know what they're talking about. So I think it's fair to say, and this is from my own personal experience, and I'll share with that later, with you later about that. But the people who actually do what they say are the ones that get better. Right, the ones that are um, follow the program and, and listen to the advice. Yeah. Um, but uh, the uh, the guy we're talking about, uh, Lance Dodes, um, for those that it doesn't work for, uh, his point, um, I, I, I think that you, you have to actually listen to the steps and listen to the advice and follow it. Uh, but if it doesn't work for you, if, if you aren't one of those 5 to 10%, you've just lost control. Like, you, you walk out feeling like, okay, well, if that didn't work, there's nothing else. Right. Because it's the only game in town for, for most, you know, most societies across the globe right now. Well, and I can tell you this, too, Joe. To me, it's a lot like the Internet. There's a lot of good information, but there's probably twice as much bad information. So if you go in there and you, and you get hooked up with the wrong person who, you know, rubs you the wrong way, gives you bad advice, has their own personal agenda. Right. There's a lot of pitfalls in there, too. Right, so you have to you have to go in with a, an open mind. You, yeah. you have to be wary of who you listen to and, and follow it for what it's worth. For those who wash out of the 12-step program, they can leave feeling powerless and out of control, which is why we turn to the science to ask the question, will there ever be a better solution? So I want to tell you a little bit about a uh, cardiologist named uh, Oliver Armisen. He was a uh, kind of a Doogie Hauser kind of doctor. 
Um, he entered uh, the University of Paris when he was 16. Uh, oh, that's smart. Yeah, a little, little bit of a smart guy. Uh, and then he ended up moving to the U.S. to um, do his, his practice. Um, so, so he was known as being this, this young genius. And in 1997, uh, he was working in his clinic in Manhattan, and he rang up his secretary and told her he wouldn't be able to come into work. And uh, she thought he was sick, and when she asked why, uh, he said he, th- he thinks drinking would interfere with his work. And she laughed at him. Uh, by, by his own accounts, she laughed at him. Uh, it's kind of like if Doogie Hauser called you up and said, I can't be a genius right now. Right. I'm, I've been drinking too much. Yeah, this guy had it all figured out. He's a perfect person, right? Right. Brilliant physician, young, prodigy. Right. and International, <laughs> multilingual language. I can see this cat. Right, he's got a French accent. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, he's just, just cool. Like, yeah, he, he's got it all figured out. Right. And he, he told her uh, that he didn't want to uh, have somebody say, hey, my chest hurts. And then he drunkenly tells them, uh, go play tennis. Yeah. So, in his words, that's basically how he put it. Um, good so, for, yeah. good for him. Yeah, he he recognized that in himself, which is a good thing. And knowing that it would interfere with his work, he he was a daily drinker. Um, he tried to quit through AA. Uh, he said he went to seven hundred meetings per year for about seven years. Uh, that's that's approximately four meetings a day. Uh, it didn't work. It, it, he he kept drinking. The urge was too much. Um, so he moved back to Paris. So he didn't dabble in AA. He was, he worked the program. He went, I mean. Yeah. Four, four minutes a day, that's four hours of already busy. Probably works 10, 12 hours as a doctor. He took this very seriously. Right, he basically lives at AA yeah. at this point. And, and totally is, emerged, surrounded in it. Right, he, he is part of the culture. Um, and when it didn't work, uh, he went back to Paris. And uh, while convalescing in Paris... Uh, he tried, uh, well, he tried multiple uh, drugs. Again, he was a doctor, so he, he knew his stuff, and he wasn't trying these willy-nilly. He knew the body and the mind, and he knew his people he's worked with, other physicians, the best. Yes, he had contacts. And he, and he, he had was, a high income, safe to say, too, right? Safe to say. Well, at this point, he... Um, All the resources. Are <laughs> yeah, his, his family uh, must have because he was a doctor, but, but at this point, he had lost his practice when he moved back to Paris. Um, so he, he is trying different uh, ang- uh, medications that would help him. Grabbing uh, at straws, looking for anything to get better. Right. And what he found is uh, now a slightly controversial, uh, controversial drug for um, alcoholism, which is uh, baclofen. And baclofen, um, uh, Armisen said it cured his cravings. Um, now, this comes with a caveat that um, this has not been proven yet that baclofen works. Um, he took it, and it, it cut off his cravings uh, for quite a few years. And then he, he started lowering his dose as he went. Um, and he said it completely worked. It, it, it shut off his cravings. He, he didn't drink anymore. He was able to um, start uh, collaborating with other doctors uh, on, on medicine. Um, and when they tried to replicate a study at the North Carolina School of Medicine, uh, they started testing people at 30 milligrams per day of baclofen to see if it would lower their alcoholic cravings. Um, whereas uh, Armisen was using 270 milligrams a day. 
Uh, and at his absolute lowest, when he was had weaned himself down, he had gotten down to 70 milligrams per day, and he swore by it. So that's still uh, more than double what they did for their test group. So they have not proven that this works yet. Um, nonetheless, the, the takeaway for me here is that's an anti-anxiety medication. So most medications we've tried for alcoholics, um, they are not anti-anxieties. They're, they're sometimes... Um, well, have you, have you heard of a, 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 any medications that uh, make you sicker when you drink? Yeah. I personally prescribe myself on Anabuse. Do you know what Anabuse is? What's that? Anabuse is something that you get court-ordered usually by, uh, usually by a judge because you've been in bar fights or there's domestic violence. What I did is I took it because I was having a problem. I couldn't stop drinking. And what happens, you take this pill, and what it does is it, it turns so if you drink alcohol, it doesn't go through your liver. It just kind of poisons you. And let me tell you, so what happens is it says don't drink. Don't drink on eye abuse. Don't do it because you have to go to the hospital. Your heart starts pounding. Your hands and face swell up. It feels like you're going to die. Um, I know this from personal experience. Wow. Yeah. But what's funny is that... Uh, you know you drink, you read reviews on the internet about stuff. Right. Read any review on Anabuse and what people say. They all say the exact same thing. It's horrible. You feel like you're going to die. There's none that say, oh, it's not so bad, or you can do it once in a while. They all say, don't do it. Right. <laughs> it's the only thing that's in 100% agreement on the internet. Right. The, all of the internet says, don't do it. But what it's for is to give you that break. If when you take this, you can't drink. And so if you're quartered to take this for 90 days, you're going to have 90 days of sobriety. They used it in, over in, um, in European countries. It's shown for a lot better results, but only because they used it for long enough. Right. They used it for nine months to a year. And in the States, they only use it for a few months. So then people go right back to the old habits. They get so far out of that pattern that they don't go back to that same stuff. Okay. So, so it has to set up the pattern, set up the habit. It's very harsh drug. For me, it was hard. And if you keep taking it, it's very hard in your liver. You're, you're likely to get you're likely to get a liver cancer. Okay. So, so it's a last. But again, if it keeps you alive and gets you in the game, right? it's better than the alternative. So uh, I'll state again that, that Todd and I are not doctors. Um, but what, what this does tell me is um, a this study, not a study, a, 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 a anecdote of, of uh, this one doctor um, that might be a good indicator that uh, alcoholism does come from a nervous tick in the brain, that, that if this is an anti-anxiety. Um, and, and the repercussions, the reason we don't sling baclofen uh, over the counter is uh, it can mess with your muscle responses. Um, so it does come with uh, drawbacks. Um, but it might be a study that we, uh, as we sort of go forward the next 10 or 20 years, it might be something that proves itself out. Um, and of course, you know, if you have problems and a hasn't worked yet, you can always, uh, find a doctor, work with your doctors, work with, you know, a, a licensed professional to help you set up a plan is, is my takeaway for this. And there's unlimited, op- you know, for, for, if you want help, there's so many people different help on addiction stuff in our country. Right. There's not just AA and nothing or no, cold turkey and nothing. There's, there, there's all types of paths. Yeah. In Stephen King's book, Dr. Sleep, the protagonist, Danny, finds a mentor who helps start his journey through the 12-step recovery. But in real life, Stephen King's journey to sobriety went a little differently. Now, personally, and I don't know Stephen King, 
but I can't see him as a school teacher leaving school and heading to the bar. I see him as an introverted writer reader. I don't see him going to nightclubs and partying. I see him going into his office, writing, drinking, doing drugs. Right. He's he's one of those uh, sit in his favorite chair and kind of drink kind of guys. Yeah. Yeah. And just just dive into his and be locked up in his office for the whole weekend, drunk and high and writing. Right. Right. It's like Steve and stop. Put the typewriter away back in the day. You know, it wasn't until his wife, Tabitha King, staged an intervention by gathering up all of his drug paraphernalia and dumped it in front of him, in front of his family and friends. Oh, so the shame technique. Yeah, the, the intervention. So and so that kind of sh- and he talked about earlier with the at the kids game. Right. He just he just couldn't do that to himself anymore. That's so understandable. He, yeah, he wasn't the, he wasn't traveling around the world and and doing all this stuff. Now, we put in the show notes, we have a really a good link here about how good the intervention worked and how he b- began his path towards sobriety. So he has been sober for a long time, and so we're going to include that in, in the in our show notes. Oh, so the intervention did work. It did. Oh, excellent. And he hasn't been back, and he's and he probably still wouldn't be around if if he kept drinking and drugging at that pace. And that would have been a tragedy because we wouldn't have seen him making fun of himself in it too. <laughs> <laughs> Alcoholism isn't limited to hopeless drunks who have lost everything or abusive husbands who go on rampages. Alcoholism exists in artists, politicians, teachers, and writers. Alcoholism exists in high-function CEOs, leaders, and parents who have never hit their kids. Alcoholism exists in 15% of humanity. It isn't a shameful defect or a lack of willpower, and it may be tied to anxiety in a very real, very treatable way. If you think you have a drinking problem, remember that demonizing your behavior might not be the solution. Intervention may or may not work for you. A 12-step, which can be 5-10% to 10% successful, may or may not work. But there's no duality of alcoholics. There's no such thing as a successful or the problem drinker unless that's the label you've assigned to yourself. Addiction is a sliding scale. And understanding your addiction and mechanisms behind your urges can be the first significant step to managing it. Finally, when you're ready to seek help, never quit trying to quit. If you've never been through a 12-step or recovery, get into the program. If you've tried it and it doesn't work, seek professional assistance. A good therapist or doctor can work with you to chart your cravings, your habits, your mechanism, and help you navigate around your unique brand of addiction in a realistic and meaningful way. There is help out there when you're ready for it. You should never feel alone in a maze with your ghost. Thank you for listening to the Reengineered You. Uh, you can find us on re engineeredu one word.com. Uh, reach out to us, Joe. You can find us on uh, Instagram. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, you can also find us on our own personal websites through uh, the Reengineered You, our main website. Yeah. And we'd like to hear from you. We like, we like you to push back. We like your opinions. We even like your opinions on show ideas. We don't know everything, but we have an opinion on everything. And because of that, we would love to argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> and if you like this show, 
refer us to somebody, give us a good review. But the biggest compliment you can give us is telling someone about the show. Absolutely. Thank you.